Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Derek Tollefson. He's a professor of social work and head of the Department of Sociology, Social Work, and Anthropology at Utah State University. He also directs the iSystem Institute for Transdisciplinary Studies at USU. The iSystem model, which provides the foundation for mind-body bridging and productive mind, was developed by Stanley Block, MD, together with his wife Carolyn Bryant Block in the late 1990s to optimize health, wellness, and human performance. The iSystem model presents a view of individual and collective psychosocial human functioning and embraces a holistic approach to healing and wellness. Derek Tollefson is co-author of a new book, Social Unrest, Resolving the Dichotomies of Me, You, and Us, Them, the iSystem Model of Human Behavior. And uh, we're going to apply uh, the iSystem Model to uh, today's unrest, which is, of course, uh, much in the headlines uh, today. Very timely book. Uh, This episode is a part of UPR's Project Resilience, made possible with support from uh, USU Center for Persons with Disabilities and The Family Place in Logan. So the title of the book is Social Unrest. Of course, we're talking about the I-System model of human behavior, but Social Unrest is the title of the book and and uh, the subtitle, Resolving the Dichotomies of Me, You, and Us, Them. So I, I guess, uh, first of all, uh, maybe we can jump into uh, what the I-System model of human behavior is, get a little foundation, then uh, apply this to you know, a lot, lot of things that are happening right now. That there, there is a lot of social unrest. Yeah, yeah, the... We actually had picked the title for the book many, many months ago before uh, the recent uh, uh, kind of social unrest, even before the pandemic um, got a foothold here in the United States. But uh, just the I system, we think of the I system as a meta system of a sort that, that operates in the background underneath if you will, or alongside of all other systems in our mind and body. And the I system's function is to create an I centered reality. And, you know, of course, we all need to develop a separate individual uh, reality uh, as part of just our, our, our normal human development process. It what, it's what helps us to differentiate between, um, you know, ourself and others. And, and so it's, it's absolutely necessary. But what happens, what we postulate happens is that this, this eye-centered reality really begins uh, to dominate um, our mind-body system. It, in part, the eye system can be tied to certain brain uh, segments or networks of our brain, including primarily the default mode network. And so when when we're in this kind of eye system dominant state, we really tend to get super engrossed with our own self, our own thoughts, and we become sort of disconnected um, from all that's around us and, and just sort of experience ourselves as this isolated, uh, individual and, and begin to lose track of our connection to other things. And so it's the I system that ultimately we argue, uh, it, it ultimately is playing a role in 
this social unrest that we experience in the world because people are, as they get deeper into their own eye systems, their eye systems become the dominant mode of functioning, they, they, they miss that connection with all other things. And so it's as if, you know, it's, it's us, them, it's me, you, uh, when that, but that's just an eye system distortion of reality. In reality, we are all intimately connected, and what what each other does affects everyone else around us, and you know, and all, and all other things uh, in this uh, earth that we participate in together. So, yeah, that's just a, a quick overview. Of, yeah. Uh, things. There's yeah. a lot, a lot else, of course, and you can you can read the book to get the the you know the the uh, underpinnings of this. Uh, also, um, a website, right? You can go to the uh, uh, socialwork.usu.edu/isysteminstitute, uh, centered at Utah yeah. State University. Yeah, that's one way to get there. You can also just use i-system.usu. Dot edu and that should get you to the same place. Yeah, and I is is the letter I, right? Not not the not yeah. the part yeah, of the body. Capital I. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. just the letter. It doesn't have to be capitalized. But. Right. Uh, so in in the book, I, I, I like the visuals. It, it kind of helps me understand. Uh, so you have a, a reproduction of the scream by Edvard Munch uh, to to illustrate uh, our connectedness, right? What do you right? Or if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, when we were thinking about how do we, you know, how do we provide a visual um, description or understanding of what we argue in the book uh, about uh, this sense of connectedness, we we settled on that uh, painting um, to to really say, you know, uh, uh, the scream really reverberates around the world and and although obviously pretty imperceptible uh, to those further away from it nevertheless uh, we feel we feel the energy or pain of that scream um, much more broadly and so we thought that that was you know, I think that's really well conveyed in that painting is is that you know, we can we can relate to that Screen, we can have empathy for that person depicted in the screen, and sometimes we feel like that, right? <laughs> Just in, yeah, in our for life, sure. yeah. Um, yeah, especially lately. Yeah, especially when, uh, lately, yeah. Uh, the world yeah. is so topsy turvy, and and uh, what was once predictable in our everyday routine is is seems to be no more. Yeah, in many cases, yeah. One well, one interesting. Um, one interesting thing you talk about this, and in relation to this, the, the painting, in fact, you talk about uh, dualities. You know, we we think about light and darkness, for example, and and we mm-hmm. we, we sometimes tend to think of the you know the, those as uh, you can't have light without darkness or darkness without light. But in, in reality, it's it, it's it's not quite that stark. Well, right, they they coexist, and you know, in a very real way, they they both exist at once, and. Um, it's not either or, and the, we talk about this concept of duality and non-duality in the book as as part of laying this broader found foundation for the I system model of human behavior, which is the, the I system 
when we're in that mode of functioning, the ice system really is, deals in dualities. And that's, so that's what creates this fiction of us, them, uh, you know, me, you, uh, that, that that's a function of the, the eye system being the dominant mode of functioning. And, and in reality, that's, that is a fiction. Uh, so we, you know, we argue that um, in reality, that reality is non-dual, uh, meaning that things exist simultaneously and they're, they're really, either ors are, are just manufactured concepts, um, again, that tie to us, tie back to identity system functioning, trying to, what we do, what we say is identity grasping, trying to get a, a grasp on one's identity and the, and, the, and the world that one participates in and trying to hold it constant. And, and that, of course, is, is just not true reality. Uh, nothing stays constant. Uh, our identities, who we really are as individuals, is incomprehensible. We're constantly evolving and becoming and changing, um, even though our identity system tries to resist that, and tries to hold us to a static, fixed, notion of who we are and who others are. Um, in reality, we're constantly changing, constantly evolving, and we can't even comprehend our, our ultimate capacities and abilities. Yeah, I want to get into that as we talk about the, 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 the great potential. Yet, yet you say in the book, um, individually and collectively as humanity, we have much more potential than we're showing. Um, so you, at the beginning of chapter three, you quote, uh, Greg Boyle. He says, there is no them and us, there is only us. Um, and then you, uh, I wonder if you talk about this, um, I system requirements and the requirements, I guess, in this, this system are, are, are negative, right? Assumptions we have or demands that we make. Um, for example, in the book, others should respect me. I mean, that's not a bad thing, right? But, uh, uh I shouldn't make mistakes, uh, life should be easier. I should have more control. My spouse should be more understanding. So these are these are requirements that we're trying to impose. Yeah, the identity system forms what we call requirements. Uh, in or it's it's part of this identity grasping that I was talking about earlier. It's trying to to create this fixed sense of how things are and have to be in order for us to maintain who we are and others to maintain who they are. So requirements can be defined really as these, these demands that we, that we adopt about how we should be, how others should be, how the world should be. We have a, a version of uh, the I-System model that we are now teaching to elementary students, and we, of course, change the, the language up to try to make it more accessible to them. And so we call requirements should, must. These are the shoulds and musts. I must be first in line at recess. I must be able to, uh, you know, talk to the teacher when I want to talk to the teacher. I must be able to do this, that, or the other. So we all have these should, must. But in reality, they they are, again, just, these attempts to try and create this fixed sense of of us and others, uh, but they, in the end, are what we call logical fallacies. 
I might have a requirement that you should be nice to me, Tom, but that's, that's just simply better stated as a personal preference. You know, I would prefer that you're nice to me, but I can't control whether you're nice to me or not. I would prefer that we didn't have uh, racism in the world, um, but, but we do. And so these requirements, they, they really try to hold us to these rigid, these rigid rules. And the problem with that is then we set out to try to make our requirements come to pass. And, and that's when all kinds of trouble begins to happen for us mm. uh, psychologically and in relationships and, and so on. But shouldn't shouldn't we, you know, uh, shouldn't I respect you? I mean, <laughs> you know, that's a that's a good expectation, isn't it? And if I if I sure, if yeah. I disrespect you, then what uh, then what should happen at, at, in that case? You you should you should protect yeah. yourself, right? Boundaries. Uh, sure. Yeah. Let me let me just speak a little bit more about that. So requirements when we teach the I system model, we don't view them as either bad or good. What we want people to do is to become aware of their requirements and how they drive them throughout the day. Requirements, when they are unfulfilled, trigger the I-system process, which fills us up with uh, a clouded mind and all kinds of body tension and confusion and so it's it's just becoming aware of our requirements and the process of bringing them into our awareness really disarms them. So, yeah, I, I would say it's not a bad thing, Tom, for me to expect you to be nice to me, right? But I can't control what you do. And if I try to, that creates all kinds of problems, whether I try to do that passively through passive kinds of passive-aggressive behaviors or more aggressive behaviors to make you be nice to me. It's just, it, it creates all kinds of problems. So when, you know, when we're aware of those requirements in, in the I-System model, we teach people how to do this through mapping and through uh, diffusing requirements. It, it really robs them of their power to ignite our eye system. Hmm. And, uh, you know, on the other side of the eye system functioning, at some point we, we should talk about natural functioning. So where, where we want to be is in our natural functioning state. And the eye system uh, takes us away from our natural functioning. When we're in natural functioning, we are in our best mind-body state to deal with whatever comes to us, whatever the moment brings to us. Mm. Even if that moment is that somebody is not nice to me, I'm in a better place to handle that than if I'm in my I-system mode of functioning. I see. So it's it's not just disarming. You're, you're not leaving yourself unprotected. You're, if you're in a natural functioning state, you're, you're better prepared to deal with the, you know, the bad things that are going to happen. Life, right? That's right. And, you know, in the case of if somebody is not nice to me, if I am in, a, in my natural functioning mind-body state, then I will know what the best thing is to do for me to protect me from you. 
I will just know what the right thing is, you know, and, and what is the right thing to do in these situations? It's so, it's so contextual, right? It's just, there isn't a one size fits all answer. And that's what is wonderful about our natural functioning is we then are in our best mind, body state to make the best decision for us. And as it turns out, as we, you know, we, we argue about this connectedness, when we're in natural functioning, we tend to make decisions that also are best for all things that we're connected to. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for that was Derek Tollefson. He's a co-author of a new book, Social Unrest, Resolving the Dichotomies of Me, You, and Us, Them, the I-System Model of Human Behavior. We'll have more following this break. Did you know that researchers are developing apps to help with depression? Studies have found that online programs can help people learn acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, which has been proven to help with a variety of mental health issues, including depression and anxiety. People who are unsure about starting therapy can first learn ACT skills using an online program and then progress to therapy sessions. The ACT model teaches skills that can be applied in a variety of ways, such as mindfulness, time management, and handling challenging emotions. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. My guest is Derek Tollefson. He's professor of social work. He's head of the Department of Sociology, Social Work, and Anthropology at Utah State University. He also directs the I-System Institute for Transdisciplinary Studies at USU. We're talking about the I-System model, mind-body bridging, and applying these principles to uh, today's unrest. In fact, Derek Tollefson is a co-author of a new book called Social Unrest, Resolving the Dichotomies of Me, You, and Us, Them. This episode is part of uh, UPR's Project Resilience, made possible with support from the USU Center for Persons with Disabilities and the Family Place in Logan. I want to uh, apply this. We've been ha- having this discussion about these requirements or demands. Uh, um, on an individual level, this is skipping ahead a little bit, but we'll loop back around. Um, my immediate thought was, okay, demands... Um, that are not being met, well, that's what we're seeing in the protests, right? Well, I think, yeah, I think the protests are certainly about communicating uh, that things are not okay, that that others are behaving in ways that are are severely impacting people, that are that are in, in horrible ways. You know, at their in their worst case scenario, um, people are killed uh, because of these kinds of, of attitudes, uh, these racist attitudes and, and mindsets. And so, the protests are really, in our view, uh, a crying out, a reaching out to all that are connected together, and say, "Look." We are connected. We are part of the same uh, group, if you will. It's not 
us and them. And, 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 and so it's, it's really a reaching out and asking for people to recognize that this, this, these groups have been othered. They've been ostracized. They've been uh, disenfranchised or maybe never fran- you know, enfranchised in the first place. And so that's through the I-System model. We, we view this essentially as feedback that things are not in harmony and balance and and our you know at the at the individual level our bodies and minds do the same thing we get feedback when we are feeling body tension and mind clutter uh, you know we're we're in that mode of clenching our jaws and tightening our fists and feeling pain in our stomach or whatever you know that's feedback protests in our view would be feedback that at the collective level that things are not okay that that we are out of harmony and balance with each other mm. so what would we talked a little bit about natural functioning at an individual level what what are some key points of how natural functioning would look like on a societal level yeah natural functioning is is defined in the same way whether we're talking about at the individual level or at the collective level and that is when we're in natural functioning, we are meeting the imperative of the moment. We are taking care of ourselves and others. We are doing what, what that moment has brought to us. We're taking the best available action to us. And it's, it's the kind of action that resonates in terms of it's in harmony with the actions and, and needs of others. So it happens at the same the same way with us as individuals, as well as at the collective level. So when we are in collective natural functioning, our eye systems are not the dominant force, and we're in that natural functioning, and we work together in ways that are harmonious, that will lead to increased balance, and uh, and will not disrupt that. So it's it's interesting to see this when we work with with groups and we look at collective eye system activity and collective natural functioning in groups. Uh, you know, we do some activities that help rest the identity system, and then we see the groups natural functioning and emerge, and and they they work together. They can make decisions together. They feel like they're part of the same unit. You know, I think we've all been in those kind of group encounters where there was a, a lot more heat and friction and conflict than there was anything else. And what do you get done in those settings? You know, if anything gets done, it's usually in a way that, you know, where it's not win-win. Somebody kind of tends to benefit most and others don't. And in natural functioning when a group's natural functioning is dominant, decisions are made that are good for the whole and the collective. Mm. What uh, what are some key factors when you're working with these these groups? What are some key factors in getting to that that point? Because there's, uh, you know, it seems like more and more, at least as a as a society, we're not functioning that way. So th- this is hopeful signs that when you, when you work with a group, you can get there. Yeah, I think that, that for us, what we do is help the groups to recognize 
the difference between eye system functioning and natural functioning. And then we teach some basic skills, the mind-body bridging skills that are that are discussed also in the book um, and other other play other things that we've written. Um, we teach them these skills, and so when those skills are used to rest the identity system, then natural functioning naturally emerges, and the group can be in that place as it as it does its work. Mm. And so it looks, you know, it can look a, a little bit different for every group that we work with, but the end result is just that we're we're aiming for natural functioning, and for diminishing the effects of eye system functioning, and then you know whatever the outcome is, the outcome is we're not we're not concerned specifically with any particular outcome. When we work with groups like this, we're concerned with them accessing natural functioning, and then the nat- the, the outcomes that need to happen will happen. Uh, so I want to get into, as we move along, uh, I want to lay a little more foundation, but then I want to get into some of these mind-body bridging skills. Um, I wanted to have you talk about uh, storylines. Uh, this is a very important uh, part of it, kind of the, kind of the negative, right? Uh, give me an example of maybe a, a storyline. Yes, storylines are are triggered actually by the requirements. So if we have a requirement and the requirement is not diffused, then it 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 tips off or it begins the storyline. So um, an example might be. Uh, I would, I'll give you an example from my own clinical practice uh, over the years where I've worked a lot with uh, family violence, domestic violence, intimate partner violence, and particularly working with offenders who've, uh, who've come to the attention of the criminal justice system because of their behaviors. So, you know, if I, if I have a requirement that says um, my partner should... Uh, always have uh, the house cleaned up. Then, and if it doesn't happen, um, and I'm I'm just blind to that requirement, and I accept that that that's just the way things should be, then that's going to trigger a storyline, such as, um, well, if my partner loved me, they would they would know what I want. They would. They would keep the house clean. They they know how much that that matters to me, and that that's a big deal. And um, and then more storylines will spin off of that. Uh, you know, why don't they? Why don't they love me? Uh, well, maybe I I'm a bad person or whatever. But or maybe they're cheating on me. Or I mean, it just the stories just spin out and spin out and spin out. The first class or type of story that emerges from an identity system requirement not being fulfilled is what we call a depressor story. And that's a story about how things are broken and damaged. Uh, You know, my partner isn't a good partner. I'm, you know, sometimes these stories about our self being damaged, I'm not good or I'm not this or I'm not that, I'm broken. And so that's the first kind of story that emerges 
And then the second kind of story, which you might predict, that follows that is a fixer story. How we're going to fix the brokenness, how we're going to fix the damage. So in the case of my partner is damaged, you know, because they're not keeping the house clean or doing whatever it is that that the person might think they ought to do, uh, then the fixer stories begin. Well, this is what I can do to fix them. I can do this. I can say this. I can do that. I can force them. And obviously, in these more extreme cases of intimate partner violence, people actually get violent uh, to try and control and make their partner fit their requirements. And so these stories keep fueling the I-system process. And, you know, I think we can all think about some of these stories that we tell ourselves day in, day out. Um, I know I have some of my favorite storylines that I, I, I tend to catch myself in. And these just continue to fuel the identity system reality. And in mind-body bridging, we teach people again how you know not only to identify requirements and diffuse them, but we teach them how to become familiar with the storylines that spin off of those requirements and how to diffuse those. So, the, and, uh, oh, sorry, yeah. uh, I was just going to oh, ask go you uh, what, uh, how do you diffuse those? I think we we all, you know, I'm I'm nodding my head. I've I've got some stories I continue to tell myself. How, how do you diffuse it? Yeah. So again, it's it's bringing it into your awareness, and it and it actually is pretty simple. Um, it might be so simple that that you and others might think, well, that's silly, but I can tell you from from my own practice and from clinical practice, teaching people to do this and then having them follow through, it's very powerful, and and it's simply to. To recognize that you're telling yourself either a depressor story about damage or a fixer story about how you're going to fix the damage, and you you diffuse it by saying, "I'm telling myself one of those stories again. What else is new? It's just a story." And we do the same thing with requirements. I'm having the thought that that you know I should be this way or so and so should be this way. It's just a thought. And it's amazing how powerful it is to do that. In a sense, I think what is happening is we're saying these are just thoughts. They're only thoughts. And we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of thoughts probably every day. And there are just a certain class of thoughts that tend to have a lot of a lot of energy attached to them and and really send us send us off into this identity system mode of functioning those are those are that special class of thoughts called requirements and when we just bring them into our awareness we say yep there's one of my requirements having that thought again just a thought then that interrupts the storyline that interrupts that whole pathway and we can use our what we call our bridging awareness practices, our our sensory practices, 
or when we're teaching it to you, to little ones, we call them our superpower senses. We engage our superpower senses, and we just get back to the task at hand. We just come back to natural functioning and, and take on whatever the moment has brought to us. So it sounds really simple, but I just invite people to try it. Oh, I'm telling myself one of those stories again. Then plug into your senses, feel that energy drain out of you, and you just get back to whatever you need to be doing in that moment. Hmm. So this is connected to, I think, sounding to me like it's connected to, to, to time. And you know, a lot of us live in the you know the past or the future, and that's where yep. that's where a lot of the stories are, right? You know, bad things that happened yep. in the past or fears for the future, and that's where some of those stories. Or a lot of those stories are, are are centered. Is is am I right in in thinking that this yeah. is connected to time? Yeah, identity system uh, kind of thinking, if you will, tends to be very past oriented and future oriented, and not now oriented. Natural functioning is always connected to the now, and. Uh, so, yeah, the storylines that we tell ourselves are usually about the past, kind of replaying past stuff, or about some imagined future, about how things are going to go, and, you know, then what we're going to do, you know, so we sort of imagine up ourselves a damaged future, and then we follow that up with a story about how we're going to fix the damaged future, you know, that isn't even here, it's not even real. So we spend a lot of time, actually maybe more time than we realize, in these stories. And the the problem with that is that they keep us in that identity system mode of functioning, and they keep us away from whatever it is that the moment has brought for us to do. Hmm. So essentially, they're, they're huge time sinks, you know, they're, they're just... They're not useful to us in any way, shape, or form. Now there are there are good stories, right? Uh, so especially, uh, you know, envisioning a good future and then working toward that—that's that, that, that's a positive thing, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Those are that sort of wouldn't really be a story in my way of thinking. It would just be sort of imagining, you know, the things that you want to accomplish or the things that you would like to experience and try, and and. I wouldn't really call those those stories, but you know, stories are more around the stories that are more problematic. And our focus are those stories that are again about this damagedness and brokenness. But even some of these stories about about happy things, if you will, you know, kind of like daydreaming, take us away from meeting the imperative of the moment. So if the story is about what's happening in the moment, that's fine. But if the story takes us away from the moment into the past or future, whether the story is is a happy story, a sad story, a scary story, it doesn't really matter to us. The point is is that we're off telling stories and we're disengaged from the imperative of the moment. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, and my guest for the hour is Derek Tollefson. He's a professor of social work and head of the Department of Sociology, Social Work and Anthropology at Utah State University. He also directs the I-System Institute for Transdisciplinary Studies at USU. We'll have more of this conversation following this break.
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, offering a Master of Public Health degree with an emphasis in nutrition-related sciences that may be explored on campus or completed 100% online. Information at mph.usu.edu. Utah Public Radio hopes you will join us in thanking our sponsors, the many businesses we rely on for their continued support of our mission to provide thoughtful and informative programming, especially in uncertain times. Please stay informed, but also know that whenever you want to find the perfect oasis, UPR2, our online classical music station, is available, and that's a wonderful thing, especially in uncertain times, at upr.org and on our app. We reached our last segment now with Derek Tollefson. He is a co-author of the new book, Social Unrest, Resolving the Dichotomies of Me, You, and Us, Them, the I-System Model of Human Behavior. We're talking about the I-System Model and mind-body bridging and applying that to uh, what's going on in our world uh, today. This episode is a part of UPR's Project Resilience, made possible with support from USU Center for Persons with Disabilities and the Family Place in Logan. So how, let's apply this, mind-body bridging, some of these skills. How do we apply that on a collective level, a societal level? Yeah, so uh, I, I think we argue in the book that it really begins ultimately with us as individuals being aware of our own identity system functioning, our own identity system requirements and storylines, and and engaging in practices to keep our identity system less dominant or rested, as uh, Dr. Block, the lead author of the book, would say. We want to keep the identity system in a mode of rest. So it begins with us as individuals. But as we learn about mind-body bridging principles and practices, we can use them and apply them in our in the groups that we belong to, and ultimately. Um, you know, the, the, this translates up to the largest uh, segments of society. So I guess our, our logic would be if, if everyone in a group is aware of and managing their I- identity system, they're also going to be able to be aware of and manage their collective identity system and see when it's running the show and when natural functioning is running the show. And, and so that's how it would scale up. Uh, obviously, at the very largest levels of society, it would just be that the more people are in natural functioning as individuals and in their smaller groups and collectives, that that would translate up to society-level behaviors and, and decision-making and so on. Mm. In the book, you, uh, you talk about uh, one of the headlines here, all social units have a collective eye system. The, the the I system I think being we want to Doctor Block says put it put it into uh, rest right we want to get beyond that what, are there some examples you could give I think you give examples here of a, say a corporation or a, or a sports team or you know some of those examples yeah we provide some of those examples in the book but you know I think maybe an, an example that's accessible to to most of us is. You know, we've been assigned to work on a team with somebody or even participate on a sports team, perhaps. We can all, I think, relate to participating on teams. And, you know, there are times when, 
when teams function smoothly and really well, um, and times where they're just full of of strife and conflict and chaos and nothing really gets done. And and we would say that in the case of, of where strife dominates and conflict dominates and nothing gets done, it's because this collective eye system you know, there, there is at work and is preventing the group from reaching natural functioning. Now, many groups do reach natural functioning and they, you know, people don't have any sense of mind body bridging or the I system model. And so we all access our natural functioning, you know, being, having no awareness of the, of anything we've talked about today, we all experience moments of natural functioning. But what we do in mind body bridging is we, we give people the, t- the tools to learn to see the difference and to learn to take action uh, to keep ourselves in natural functioning more often. Um, so what would, uh, let me quote, the, you quote Gandhi in the beginning of chapter 7, the difference between what we do and what we are capable of doing would suffice to solve most of the world's problems. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that to us is really the gap between identity system functioning and natural functioning. Um, you know, what we tend to do really tends to be identity system dominant functioning much of the time. And if we could all reach that space of natural functioning more often, both as individuals and in the collectives we operate in, that would close that gap. So I'm curious, as maybe it's a, take an example of a, a group or groups that you've worked with, uh, I guess it starts with uh, getting them some of this knowledge, uh, helping them be aware of uh, you know some of these things that are going on. Are, are there steps that you take them through, you know, to to get to a higher levels as a group? Yeah, yeah there are, and we we talk about this a little bit in the book in the collective um, the collective interventions chapter, but we you know again. We're, we're teaching basic mind-body bridging skills uh, to the collective so that they can learn to see their own identity system functioning and natural functioning. And then we take them through some exercises that involve maps. Uh, mind, we call them mind-body maps in, in mind-body bridging and the ICE system model. And so we teach people mapping skills. And these maps can be done at the individual level, and they can also be done at, uh, as groups. And so we teach them that process, and and through the process of, of doing some mapping, identifying collective requirements, collective storylines, diffusing those, we teach an organization how to access their natural functioning, get the I system out of the way, and you know this can be done uh, with with all kinds of groups. We've been. Uh, recently doing some training for uh, some of the folks in athletics uh, because this has this transfers over to teamwork and you know we I think we can all see we've all seen uh, our favorite teams in moments where they're kind of working together in harmony and balance and then in moments when they're not and you can clearly tell the difference. And so 
we we help groups begin to be able to see that and 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 have skills that they can use really simple basic skills that they can use to make sure that when they're working together it's in that natural functioning space hmm. uh, so to bring this uh, back to you know what what we're seeing right now um, so you know systemic racism and uh, many people in the streets uh, how do you apply some of these you know mind body bridging and uh, some of these tech not techniques some of these ideas to uh, how we make progress as a society on some of these issues? Well, I think it, it, it goes back to this this idea of connectedness. And we talk in the book about what Stan, Dr. Block, calls the net. The net is just really a metaphor uh, for understanding this connectedness. And, and so I think at, at this kind of collective level, it's, it's being kind of aware of our own identity system requirements around race and around you know these kinds of social issues and 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 working on our own identity system issues and then that allows us to experience that connection with each other you know clearly if we were as a society behaving in ways that that really understood that appreciated this sense of connectedness, you know, we would make we would all make a lot of different decisions um, in our day in and day out lives, and and so that's ultimately what is needed here is you know we we are hearing from parts of this larger system that it's not working for them that it's that it's out of harmony and balance and and we need to listen. We, just like we need to listen to our body's feedback when we are teaching mind-body bridging skills, we need to listen to this collective feedback uh, because it's real, it's organic, it's natural, and and we need to listen and we need to talk with each other, not from our eye system place, but from a system of natural functioning, and 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 it's possible, it can be done, and as people learn about these things. And it's possible that we can reach decisions that are mutually beneficial for for all involved, and that don't leave some uh, on the short end of the stick. Oh, just to have a few minutes left in the conversation, it it, it really strikes me. I want to go back to this. Uh, this is a subheading in one of the chapters. The I system isolates us. We need to talk yes. a little bit more about that, and then then how do we get beyond this duality of us them, which is which is part of the problem, right? Yeah, I, when we are in identity system functioning, we we really do experience ourselves as you know this this kind of island, um, as if the island wasn't surrounded by a sea and didn't depend on the sea um, for its very creation and its maintenance. Uh, we, we just tend to get in that mode of self. Uh, when the eye system uh, network is, is strongly online and dominant, it, we say it's like our MeTube channel is on. We're running the MeTube, and it's all about me. It's all about I. Um, and, again, that's just it's all part of this identity system's uh, effort to, to engage in identity grasping. And 
and trying to hold on to this this kind of fiction about ourselves as as a as a completely unique um, sort of isolated single uh, island, and, and and that's just a fiction. Again, in natural functioning. Uh, you know, I've recorded a little radio spot. I think that will be on UPR. Um, you know, how, how do we do this at an individual level? Try this. Like I say in the radio spot, come to your senses. When you're feeling that tension and mind clutter and and sort of disconnectedness, isolation, use your senses. Connect with all that's around you, and and I think you will ex- start to experience yourself and your place in the world very differently you just net when we're in natural functioning we automatically understand our connectedness uh so in the conclusion uh to the book uh you you ask the authors ask an important question um i'll just quote this the question then arises is there a critical point at which we must arrive in order to end all this suffering? Is there a critical mass? How many countries must engage in mind-body uh, bridging practices before world peace becomes more likely than war? Uh, what's, what's, is there a critical, uh, critical point? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a rhetorical question, something to, to get people thinking. But, you know, clearly it seems to us that we're headed in the other direction, um, that we're, we continue to be headed in a direction of separation and isolation. And, you know, how long are we going to believe that fiction? How long are we going to believe our identity system fiction that we are not connected, um, that what, that what I do uh, it doesn't affect other people, that, um, you know, that, that we are, we are this, this individual, um, with our own, you know, individuality, and, and, and you know, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with any of that, but it's it it is a fiction. We are not simply an individual. We are connected, and and the world desperately needs us to 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 switch over from that identity system fiction to natural functioning, uh, which which completely understands and embraces this idea of connection. And if we, if that's our paradigm, it 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 really will change decisions that we make, and and the things that we do, mm-hmm. because we we understand that connectedness. Well, we're just about at the end of the conversation here. Um, I just want to point out at the very end of the book, you have um, you you mentioned. You know, uh, programs you participated in, or I guess uh, the things that are available. Uh, for example, educational uh, programs for teachers and students, uh, for police, firefighters, military, uh, for conflict resolution, uh, race relations, and et, et cetera. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah, I think uh, all we have those those kinds of resources. We have both literature uh, for applying mind-body bridging skills to. Some, some fairly common issues such as anxiety, stress, post-traumatic stress, um, other mental health issues. We also have some literature around you know, applying this at the collective level. And like I said, we, we're in the process of rolling out a, a program where we teach these skills to, 
to children and school-age children, and we've been working with teachers on that. So we're, we've done trainings for lots of different human service organizations and some uh, business organizations in the area. So if anyone's interested in learning more about this, they can just reach out to us, and, and we can really work with that organization to adapt the materials to fit them. Uh, how best to how about how best to reach you? Yeah, so you can reach me at uh, my USU emails, probably the best uh, d e r r i k dot t o l l e f as in Frank s o n at usu dot edu. And uh, how best to find the the institute? Yeah, just go to that i-system.usu.edu, and that should take you there. All right. Or just Google i-system institute USU. And the book is Social Unrest, Resolving the Dichotomies of Me, You, and Us, Them. Uh, Derek Tullifson, one of the uh, authors. Uh, Thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanity and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org. Hi, this is Dennis Hingamp. I listen to UPR on my smart device, Alexa, when I'm at home, in a car at 91.5. And when I travel, I just open up my computer to upr.org and listen to live streaming.